0: From Rixie, this is Frameform.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to another Wednesday here at Frameform. Jen, Hannah, how are you both doing? Goody, good, good.
2: <laughs> I think Wednesdays are my favorite day. So, pretty good. Yeah, pretty good.
1: Right on, right on. I am psyched for today's episode, and it might seem like today's episode is a bit of a deviation from what we usually do, but as you will see, this is very much in line with what we do. Now, whenever we talk about dance film or whenever we talk about movement-based film, a lot of reference gets pointed to the silent era. Reason being that... Since we don't have sound to necessarily assist the story, much of the plot or much of the story is really propelled through movement. And today we are going to be looking at a classic of cinema and really, even if you frame it really basically a classic, you could argue of dance film cinema, certainly movement-based cinema. Absolutely. Yes, yes, yes. And just so—just choreographic from so many points. So today, we are focusing on Fritz Lang's Metropolis, the classic film from 1927.
0: So, Jen, you were actually the one that came up with this idea of taking Metropolis as our pick of the season for a deep dive, which we like to do, you know, we've done one, we've done a couple actually in season one where we're looking at one film and really dissecting all the parts and elements to it. And this week it's a narrative film that is not categorized as a dance film, but today we are looking at it as a dance film. So Jen, what brought you to bring Metropolis to the table as we're going to like pick it apart?
2: Well, The week that we were really trying to make a decision, like which film or which person are we going to focus on for Deep Dive, I had just received a DVD of Metropolis in the mail as a gift to myself. And part of why I ordered this film is because I was like, just fascinated. I didn't already have it in my collection. I don't have a massive collection, but I like to have very key pieces in the canon. And I do... Consider this film as a screen dance and as an early influence and a really important film that, you know Anybody that's taken film 101 has probably seen of or heard or attempted to watch the full length of this movie and I think especially looking at it from the lens of Seeing it as a screen dance or as a dance film or from the perspective of that intersection I think that's a great way to look at this specific film and really unlocks part of why it is such an epic film that we're literally talking about a hundred years later and it's still being referenced and is just as relevant
0: as ever. I totally agree with that. I mean, just recently I was listening to an episode of a friend of of mine doing a podcast also talking about this show. So it was definitely a great uh, opportunity for me to uh, just re-watch and also re-listen to that episode on Metropolis to get my gears going. Literal gears. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> hey. <laughs> and um, really break down the elements. I've seen this movie long ago. I actually watched it for a VFX class, Because this was one of the films that showcased visual effects very early on. And I mean, I wasn't paying attention fully to the film because it is, you know, uh, a silent picture. And I was more interested of like how they were using that element on screen. But I mean, watching it from the dance eye this round, I mean, right away, just from that opening shot of the city and then the workers i was 100% oh yeah this this is this is going to be a journey of choreography here
2: totally and you know today's episode is called deep dive so of course we are going to dive really deep into the symbolism and our fusion and our understanding of this as a screen dance but i think in order to get to the deep end we got to kind of wade through the more obvious and surface-level things that we want to share about this film. So you mentioned the VFX, and absolutely the visual language of this film is epic. It is part of German Expressionist Cinema. You know, part of that is inspired by dramatic stage plays. And, you know, when we're dealing with a nonverbal medium, you know, something that doesn't have recorded dialogue— There's the use of title cards, but also this extreme physicality and mise-en-scene. And, you know, Fritz Lang was originally an architect and a trained architect. And you can really see the architecture of each shot that makes this so effective. I honestly think that if this were not a film or screen dance, the best medium for this particular story would be like a graphic novel.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, I heard a quote recently from a friend that's uh, cinema speaks through space. And really, the way that space is carved both geographically and two dimensionally on the screen throughout is really striking to watch. Something else that really got into my mind, and I'm absolutely not sure if Lang derived any influence from this, but it reminded me of sort of a reinterpretation of city symphonies. Yes, so like a dark, nightmarish version. Exactly, exactly. And in so many so many shots, it really is the city speaking for itself, or like the, the hyper choreography of the cars rolling by and just so much activity going on. And even in the buildings, like even if we see a blank building, that still implies activity happening inside. And there really is this tie-in to both those city symphonies and a really interesting predilection of the avant-garde that was going to go on later on. Like Len Lai, for instance, you can see, probably watch this film quite a bit. There's a lot of play on light and a lot of play on space. So it really is this use of space and really this use of uh, this establishment of place that sets a very important canvas for the film and the use of both the three-dimensional and two-dimensional plane that really work in tandem together to advance the story.
0: And there's so many depictions of this film. It's Actually, there's also many cuts of it ever since it's resurfaced in Buenos Aires, Argentina. Luckily, uh, someone who saw this film was able to get a copy and was found in 2008 and was basically restored. And 2010 was put together with... Basically, scenes that were missing and getting to see characters more, more, as we said, three-dimensional here. There's so many different versions of this film. And when it first premiered in Berlin in January 1927, the cut was 153 minutes long. Now, this has changed over time, as said, when it resurfaced. Uh, when it played in the U.S., it actually got shortened because they thought that American audiences could not sit through a long period of time. 153 minutes went down to 115 minutes. And then there was a re-release later in 1936 going to about only 91 minutes. That's just your basic feature film right there. But as we said, when it resurfaced in 2008 and we were able to put frames back into place uncovering more depth between characters we have now have a cut of 148 minutes which is still not complete there's still some damage frames in the repair but it really looks great (laughs) in what was missing because when you watch you know different versions of it, it you don't get You you get some missing context while watching it.
1: So to provide a brief, brief summary of the plot, which again, there's a Wikipedia page uh, in the show notes. You can go there for the more comprehensive version. But at its core, Metropolis is a film that depicts a city that is very modern, very highly built up in a, I guess, both literal and figurative Tower of Babel that is overseen by Jo Frederson. Now, underneath the city lives the the working class and lives the workers who essentially operate and re- essentially provide the mechanical services needed for this city to function. Throughout all of this, Frederson's son, Fredder, which um, for those of you who know patronymical names, that doesn't exactly isn't exactly consistent, but <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> shouldn't in the, future. the son
2: be
0: Fredder's son? Isn't that how it works? They refer to him as that sometimes too. So it's like the mix of the two, just kind of, you know, he's boy. <laughs>
1: Yeah, just yeah, add to the layers of confusion, why don't we? So Frederson uh, takes an interest in the workers and the plight of the workers, and in doing so, notices this so-called mediator, Maria, who is presented as this very angelic figure, essentially providing stories to, I mean, essentially validate the, the workers' pain, but also give them a sense of hope. Now, all of this gets kind of thrown out the window when this scientist Rotvang, who harbors a deep resentment for Yo Frederson um, in—again, this was actually a key part of the plot that was cut out of the original cut—harbors a deep resentment for Yo Frederson because Frederson stole Rotvang's wife, and that woman ended up dying in childbirth. So mad scientist Rotvang wants to create—well, one wants to get back at Yo Frederson, but also wants to create— this robot or this mechanized woman in the likeness of his, you know, stolen and then deceased lover. And then things happen from there. So this
2: film's over two and a half hours, and Claire, that was extremely impressive how you processed and boiled that all down for our listeners. Um, We're also going to link to different articles and video essays and things in the show notes that were just part of our research, because there's really so many different avenues and approaches you can take to interpreting this film. I think two general things I want to, I think it's important we cover today are the sort of aesthetic and the sonic elements, just like from a pure technical level, but also on an impact level. And then what's all the stuff that's going into, like, the symbolism and the themes and everything here? Like, because even just the description alone has references to the Bible and gender relations and, you know, interpersonal relationships and just, you know, there's this whole sequence or, you know, recurring theme of envision vision of the seven deadly sins. It's a really intense film, and I think it's crazy how literally almost 100 years later— you can still watch it and derive so much meaning from it. Why don't we start on more, like, the surface-level technical things and then work our way down to, like, the deeper meaning? So I think, just first of all, do you consider this film Screen Dance? And if we were to do that, what sort of elements are we evaluating? Kind of give us a 101 approach to how is Metropolis possibly considered to be
1: a screen dance or a dance film short answer to your question yes it is a screen dance yes i agree (laughs) (laughs) slightly longer answer and something that's so crucial to this film is the hybrid element of the movement the film and the sonic element to it, which again, this was right at the precipice of sound film, but it still had a full score written for it. And actually it was the score that really helped reconstruct the film later on. But something that struck me as I was watching this is just how few title cards there are in the whole film i mean you you do see some like dialogue being spoken and gestures being accompanying that dialogue but not all of it is word for word transcribed really only the selective elements that advance the film so the physical body is telling the story the physical body is communicating this story add that in to some of the visuals, which again, these are not arbitrary visual effects. These are very, cons- like very highly considered and very symbolic elements. Like we'll probably talk about it later on, but the cabaret scene with those eyes and we see overlays. We see um, these images that are really, really providing that symbolic context and really providing that poetic context that um, advances the film.
2: Well, and speaking of the title cards and poetry, I mean, each title card has, like, a life of its own. Like, from the very beginning, when you see the workers descending to, you know, their level into the catacombs, like, the actual text is scrolling down. The text has a personality. When you see Maria, the, you know, the deity, like, this angelic figure speaking, the corners are are glowing. And it's just amazing how strong choices and just having— really using, like, stark language and imagery can be so effective in communicating. You know, even with, like, classic ballets and operas, the acting is so extreme because you can't use words. And I think this film, it, I'm just baffled at the fact that it not only is successfully communicating, but the deep sort of symbolism that it's communicating— one key phrase that it is sort of the metaphor that the film centers around and is something that's introduced numerous times throughout is uh, the mediator between the head and the hands must be the heart and this is really the central thesis of the film and isn't it amazing how you're seeing throughout the this put in practice and you have this very technical film carrying these tough themes but because there's so much heart and artistry and poetry to it, we're able to process it. And it just, it's just—it's super cool how it all plays out.
0: Yeah, I feel like that message, when it's even kind of mentioned early on, like, i it clicked right away. You know, just because of the setup of the characters and how they are placed on screen— I don't want to say you could have ended it right there, but it was just like, that was your given answer. But maybe you could have. Yeah, but you could, like, (laughs) it was just But maybe you could have. Like, complicating things. I mean, the whole thing wouldn't be the way it was unless it was, like, this saying early on that gives you, like, the hint or um, the call to action for Frieder to, you know, have that heart, you know? And I think it's just kind of funny just to jump to that conclusion real quick like it just makes me think of like well does should all sons be you know be the heart of what business is all about like it's just like kind of like silly things i of like of it, it all relates to in modern day and i think that's why also like another reason why metropolis is so digestible in year 2021 because it all relates to themes that is used on a day-to-day.
2: Totally. Well, I want to quickly, like, shout out slash mention that Fritz Long, who directed this, he eventually left Germany because he refused to join the Nazi party. And I think it's very interesting how he is someone that has the mind, has the head, has the technical skill, has the hands, and he he wanted to keep the heart in what he was doing and you might be listening and thinking like oh he's making movies he's not like working for the government but what actually happened is you had ufa in germany that was a government owned film production conglomerate and they started buying out all the independent studios so it i think it is significant to kind of highlight how him as an auteur or as an artist and as a director uh, conveyed that message and really lived out his protest by being like, I'm going to go to the U.S. I'm going to go to Hollywood. I'm going to go make my movies
1: there where I can be a free thinker. Credit to him. He had a long career. He worked like into the, into the 60s, I believed. He must have loved it. Yeah. But yeah, there's his foresight is so, at least with the benefit of hindsight, we can really see how forward thinking that Long was. And... Again, I know I harp back to the sound, but the sound score really helps create that on like on camera space. And it's something that you would eventually see in some of his work later on. Like M is a a film with fantastic sound design. And it's the kind of thing where on one hand, maybe if he'd made this film three years later, which I mean, maybe maybe fascism would have taken his hold by then. He might not have been able to make it. But uh, if had he had make it, made it in the sound era, this would have been a totally different picture. And had he made it without consideration of the sound at all, this would have been a different picture as well. I mean, ex- extravagance definitely
0: goes the extra mile. I mean, with a name like Metropolis, you're thinking of just abundance. And that is what is shown all throughout this picture especially just what we see on camera how do we entertain the audience through yes the music yes the camera but it's just like it's a silent picture as we said minimal title cards with very I would say just like in a way almost like a staged ballet pantomiming you know everything is taken to the extra mile and I think that's what's so like successful as well as how this also is a screen dance because you see these big visual representations of buildings yet you also get those similar style of movement through the workers there's that one scene when they're rebelling when runo the robot is leading them and it literally looks like one of the pathways or one of the styles of the building i mean it's when you think of excessiveness and what that is in this picture it's definitely super clear and how chaos is just all at once, you know, and that was, if I could think of like another name for this movie and then Metropolis, I was just going to say like, just
2: chaos. Well, and the crazy thing is to think about in the context of when it was produced as well, the fact that they were pulling off these sorts of visuals and just incredible production value. I mean, at the time, uh, this was the most expensive movie made. It was $5 million, um, which adjusted for inflation is $16 U.S. million today. And that's like oh sorry,
1: uh, it's five. I think it was five million Reichsmarks. Is I don't know how much one Reichsmark okay. is for. Um... Okay. Okay. The, t- the The total number I got was sixteen million
0: US. The oh, okay. price of at, an at the indie end. movie of today. Well, and that's
2: that's <laughs> the thing. And like, I always get nervous, like quoting any sort of like. Currency or things like that because it's so true that, like, you have the currency exchange from a different country and then you have, like, the different uh, adjustment for inflation over time. So th- these numbers are always, you know, never perfect. But even so, the thing was a big deal. And it was super expensive at the time. And it was just such on such a big scale. And I think you're so right, Hannah. Like, the chaos just comes through. The screen, Like, you can feel that energy. And this was probably before a lot of, you know, workers' rights and sort of best practices in cinema. Like, for example, in the flood scene, Fritz Long encouraged that the water be cold for all the children. Yeah. <laughs> oh um, apparently, he made sure they were well fed and everything. But it's like, yeah, let's make the water cold just to make it even more treacherous for them. There's a part where Maria is being burnt at the stake. And um, they use real fire. And her dress caught on. On fire, there's also the robot costume that she wears. Like, there's no CGI like that in this. She's wearing this extremely uncomfortable plastic costume that was, like, cutting and bruising her, and she could barely breathe, and she fainted at least once in it. So pretty crazy uh, sacrifices made to bring this thing to life, and it's pretty incredible how, to this day, we still see references... To this film and th- across the decades as well.
1: I, I just want to touch on the the movement of the film and specifically the frame rate, which actually was not a creative decision, but actually I think that this was actually this helps emphasize the hyper chaos of the on screen world. So. Uh, The film was shot in 16 frames per second, but at almost every screening, I think even at the premiere, it's been shown at 24 frames. So the movement that was uh, captured initially is sped up 150 percent, which does add to that really um, hyper-expressionistic physicality and, again, really emphasizes the physical performances of each character. And I actually want to touch on Bridget Helm's performance, which I think is spectacular in this just both as sort of this pious like virgin mary type maria as well as the very robotic very staccato almost you know possessed you know machine men and again like she suffered the brunt of a lot of the physical the physical tasks like the scene where she is on that rope. She is on that rope, like 25 feet above a floor. And if she lets go of that rope, she's crushing her legs. And that difference in characterization and really using movement to differentiate characterizations really serves the film as a whole, but really comes to a fore in in the dance scene. Absolutely. That dance
2: scene is so ahead of its time like much of this film but just I'm in awe how with manual editing technology they were able to get such smooth overlays and such a beautiful hypnotic feel to everything and just the physical performance i feel like this you know this scene I don't feel it is factually this scene where it's situated in the film is kind of you almost have like these parallel plots like moving towards each other the whole time and like colliding occasionally to emphasize the symbolism. And she is literally positioned as, you know, worse than all the seven sins. She is the, the woman of Babylon. She's this evil figure, this demon. And it's her position and everything and how she's raised up is paralleled with like this book of doom that they're sharing. And it's it's it, it's positioned as the climax of the film, really. And this was not the only film that included uh, cabaret or jazz scene or movement. And as a really quick aside that I think connects to this scene, but also connects to just the general symbolism of, of women, a lot of these films in the 20s that had these flapper characters and these liberated women that like wore makeup and partied and danced and like had free physicality, they usually were uh, this conflict, this tension, this problem was usually resolved by either them like literally dying in some tragic way or being, you know, tamed and getting married and having children. And I'm not saying like that's my characterization of being tamed, but that is how these movies were really set up. And this is one great example that if you take that nugget and then you connect it with the Machine Man and the Madonna horror complex I see present in this film, you really get a rich reading of some gender conflicts. It's really insane how, how rich this all comes together in this film
1: that the scenes also uh, a bit of social commentary as well uh, especially given that this was created right from the Weimar you know the the hive of the Weimar Republic which was that very tumultuous but artistically rich time between wars in Germany cabarets were popping up and really at that time seen as escapism And at the time, the the cabaret dancing and sort of like the frenetic nature of the cabaret dancing was mimicking the frenetic nature of the really hyper-industrialized, hyper-modernized life. So essentially, people were escaping their lives through a method that also was causing this sense of hyper-stimulation and over-saturation, which... Things maybe maybe we don't have cabarets, but we have these little screens in front of us all the time, and it's a similar thing today. That's people are escaping this hyper hyper saturated hyper mechanized life, and escaping by means of a you know oversaturated hyper mechanized little screen. Those
2: scenes where you were. the workers are first established and they're, like, moving down the hallways with their heads down, I honestly pictured them having smartphones in their hands. Like, it would be so easy to edit to show that because the posture is the same. And I really feel like this film, you could do a a modern-day remake or reading of it where social media or this fusion of your real self and your digital self becomes this enemy. Like, And to take, you know, to take the whole, like, interpersonal relationship thread out of this, like, you have different female characters all played by Bridget Helm. You have, like, your Maria, your immaculate, heavenly, like, crosses behind her. Title cards glow when she speaks, like, angelic figure. Then you have the robot woman who is revived by, is a revived version of someone who died in labor, you know so there's an example of again the woman dying in a life transition because like society can't deal with it not i mean that's not why she died in labor but you know it's like symbolically that's what it is and then you have like this dark evil cyborg version and this evil cyborg that dances in the jazz scene is this liberated dark sexual person and it the the male reactions because this is like a male gaze sort of Film and scene in particular, like this exaggerated like panting and like bug eyes and everything. Like very <laughs> cartoony reactions. Like, oh, I'm sweating. Like, let me loosen up my necktie. Like, the, yeah, exactly. The guy looking like he has a huge headache. Like it's it's this grotesque loss of, of intimacy and the, and the lack of the heart and the soul in this bodily interaction. It's a very like spectacle driven like hypersexual expression that it, it it's it's like a symptom of an unhealthy person that's not integrated that can't have intimacy you know that has the madonna whore complex i know this is like you know this episode's called deep dive okay so you know <laughs> this is like you know like this is one reading i really have of it where i think this film is not just a criticism of looking at the relationship between us and machines but also of you know, those gender relations. And if you take that with the modern-day social media twist, I think, like, these cyborgs represent the highly manufactured representations we have of women and men, but, you know, in this case, women, like, on social media, you know, elsewhere, just, like, a lot of plastic surgery and filters and this unrealistic expectation that is robbed of intimacy and humanity and a soul in a sort of way.
0: Yeah, it's unleashed repression, basically. And I I think that's a di- very, very interesting take uh, for like a, a modern day smartphone edition of that. And that's what I was saying earlier, like how this film still to this day is so relevant no matter what year it is, because it's still addressing the thematic uh frustrations or situations that we deal with on a daily, no matter what the technology is, it's something.
1: Yeah. And it really just highlights the mechanized body. I mean, beyond, you know, the robot lady. Even in the workers, like in the way that they're moving their bodies and really their bodies are in service to this machine. And essentially they're told that they must continue to operate the machine. They must continue to operate the machine in order to push society forward or to continue to operate this city. And we're absolutely at this time where you know, technology and like little technological gadgets have have a stronghold on the way that life operates and the way that, I mean, effectively, you know, countries are run. And it's that's having profound effects. I mean, physically, obviously, if people are like staring into their screens and leaning down all the time, but psychologically as well, that people are literally addicted to these machines. Like they are becoming one with their machines.
2: Well, it's interesting how these things, you know, when there's a real deep-seated truth there, how they can really grow over time. And, you know, Metropolis was so ahead of its time, and we've seen it referenced throughout the decades. I mean, just to obligatory mentions as part of, like, talking about this film. You know, how about we all kind of, we can share the ones that, that we... Noticed or were aware of because I think everyone's got their own kind of entryway to this and some of the ones you all put in there I was like I hadn't seen that one. So like for me I definitely I mean I talked about Rhythm Nation last year or last season when we did our music video episode and this to me Really looks like Rhythm Nation obviously modern times and my third one. I'll mention is obviously like Blade Runner There's video essays. We're gonna link in the description that show like shot for shot similar buildings and everything
0: well, some scenes or some buildings, I should say, in Blade Runner are actually modeled right after Metropolis. So I, I too, right away uh, saw the connection between these two films. I've read some articles talking briefly about Terminator and the cyborg. I was thinking of Gotham City with Batman and just how, just again, acts, so much excess of
1: things. Absolutely. And I'm just thinking of like musical artists who have sort of this mechanized woman as sort of their, their thesis or even like as a part of their musical act. I think Janelle Monet, her debut AP was literally called Metropolis. You can see her first album, Arch Android, really directly draws on these themes as well. And even someone like Grimes, like with her last album, This Anthropocene, really is interested in sort of this human machine idea as well. And I think that's something that's resonated from this film. And I mean, it's hard to really say it directly tied back to it, especially considering most references to the resurrection of a woman were eliminated from the first screening of the films. But really this idea that you can revive something gone through technology or through through science. I'm just thinking, I watched Solaris recently. That's another one that deals with the, the ethics of that. And some episodes of Black Mirror deal with that as well. But it really does bring up this ethical concern of, well, not only cloning, but also continuing to hold on to a memory using technology and just realizing that that's not, it's not the same as it was.
2: Well, I think we have a moral obligation to keep Metropolis alive. I mean, we've made it a hundred years. And I think that there are so many different lessons we can take away from this film. And I'm sure that no matter how much more complex technology and human relations become in our further enmeshed reality with our symbiosis with technology, even as it all advances, I think that we'll still have some core lessons to take away from a film that has so much wisdom, such as this one. I think that we've definitely made a good case today that it's understood this film's part of the cinema canon, but it should absolutely be part of the screen dance or dance film canon as well.
1: 100%. 100% as well. (laughs) So
0: as our deep dive wrap up comes to an end, we have to say this because we also want to hear from you and we want you to message us and let us know what you think we should watch as our next deep dive. You know, is there another film out there that we may not know is considered also a dance film or do you have a dance film that we should take a deep dive on? Let us know by sending us an email at frameformpodcast at gmail.com. And with that said, it has been another episode with Jen, Claire, and
1: myself. Thank you
0: for listening. Thank you, Jen and Claire.
1: Thank you all. And just as a reminder, from the earphones in your head to the phone in your hand, always remember the mediator between the head and the head. And the hands must be the heart. Stay soulful, everyone. We'd love to
0: hear from you. Send us an email at frameformpodcast at gmail.com and engage with us on social at frameformpod That's Frameform P-O-D. If you like what you're hearing, leave a review and rate the show. It really helps out. And if you know someone who also likes dance or film, join the conversation and bring your friends.
2: Frameform is a production of Rixie, hosted by Hannah Weber, Jen Ray, and Claire Schweitzer, edited by the Frameform team, mix and theme song by myself, Mason Carlton. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.